If you're new with us, we're working our way through uh, Luke's gospel. We've been in it for about five years or so. Uh, Not quite a year, but it's been so enjoyable. And uh, we're in a, a challenging text, an important text. Let's pray for help as we look at it. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Lord, your the ability to open your word and to hear it and to be with your people is certainly evidence of your goodness to us. And we recognize uh, what a gift uh, your grace is, what a gift your word is, and the Holy Spirit, whom we pray would come and teach us and convict us of sin, lead us into the path of righteousness for the Lord Jesus' sake. Come have your way in our hearts as we look at this passage in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, in verse 25, you notice that uh, Luke tells us that great crowds are accompanying Jesus. That is, they're traveling with him. You can imagine this, uh, the a number of people uh, journeying with Jesus, as was uh, quite typical of, of someone who was a rabbi, uh, a teacher. And, of course, we know Jesus was more than that. But nevertheless, he's grown quite popular. And you might say now that Jesus turns to this large crowd and addresses these bandwagon fans. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that phrase in the world of sports. A bandwagon fan is a person who suddenly becomes a fan of a team because of their rise in popularity or success. Even though they don't know the team's history, they don't know the players or those kinds of things, they're, they're different than diehard fans. Diehard fans, we have many in this room, live through the terrible seasons of their uh, favorite team. Uh, They have their flag flying outside. They can tell you the history of their team and all the players and and all of those sorts of things. These are the diehard fans. They're loyal uh, through and through in the uh, popular television show Ted Lasso. Uh, it's about a soccer team that is terrible. And, uh, but the fans are so loyal to their team, and they have cheers, and, and they, they live for those uh, particular uh, games. Well, Jesus is not interested in bandwagon fans. He's not interested in making some superficial followers. And this is very important because we know of countless stories where people had at some point a momentary emotional experience, sort of a a quick wave of enthusiasm regarding Jesus and the faith, but fade away only to prove to never be his disciple. And so Jesus' approach to the crowd is very interesting. Ordinary human leaders take great delight in having the masses follow them. They often, uh, much is made of how many Twitter followers they have or how many people come to their events and those kinds of things. But Jesus takes a very unusual approach to the crowd. He, he, he thins the herd out, you might say. And this is interesting it's in the world of the church, where often this is the name of the game, to see how many people you can have. And many will do anything to garner a crowd, include water down the message. Jesus says you need to hate your family, die on a cross, and renounce everything. That's Jesus' words to the crowd. Not a very seeker-sensitive kind of approach to his uh, preaching. And so most of the people were kind of like, I think we'll go to the rabbi down the street. And he does this sort of thing in a number of places. In John chapter 6, he's just performed a miracle and, uh, on the, about, uh, with bread. And then he goes into his teaching, and his teaching was too radical for most people to accept. He turns to the masses and says things like, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
And then John tells us after this, many turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus looks to his disciples and he's like, do you guys want to leave too? And he, they were like, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus knows that there are some in this crowd who are there for all sorts of reasons. Some are there out of curiosity. Some probably wanted to see some more miracles. Some thought Jesus might be the political Messiah that would overthrow Rome. Some were probably just brought along by others. And Jesus wants them to know what it means to be all in. And this is one of the things I love about the Bible. It's one of the things I love about Jesus. One thing I love about uh, his word is that there's no fine print. Jesus tells you up front, plain and clear, this is what it means. There's no extra book of the Bible. There's no smoke and mirrors. There's no fine print. No, Jesus just up front tells us what it means to be his follower. And the reality is you can do a number of things to draw a crowd. But Jesus is into something more than a crowd. He wants people to be in him. And so maybe you're in the room today and you find yourself at sort of a crossroads in your life. Maybe it's whether or not you should follow Jesus or maybe you're, you're drifting away and you need to hear this word. Whatever the case, it's very important that we think through what Jesus is saying here. And that's actually one of the themes of the passage. Think it through. Think through what it means for you to count the cost and follow Jesus. You probably heard the two parables that, that Daniel read where he says twice in verse 28 and verse 31, sit down and think. And that's what most of us are doing right now. Sit down and think whether or not you should build this tower, he says, and sit down and think whether or not you should go to war with that army that's bigger than yours. Think through, and now if you're a parent, you do this all the time probably. Your kid gets very excited about something, and you want them to count the cost. And you tell them all the things that that's going to involve. If they, like, you say to your, your son, uh, you know, I've got to go to Charleston tomorrow on business. And he says, well, can I go? Well, you can go, but we're leaving at five in the morning. We're not stopping for the bathroom. Uh, you'll be bored all day because I'm in meetings. And then we're going to drive back at night. And we're taking the car that doesn't have the DVD. And little John, he's like, I'm out. I'm not interested anymore. I remember at one particular occasion, I was telling my son Joshua to count the cost. I was about to go for a, a run. And he said, he was seven years old. He said, uh, he said Dad, I want to go on this run with you. And I said, well, I'm going to run three miles. I was like, and we're not stopping. Okay, no complaining. I don't, I don't think you want to do this. He said, oh, yeah, I do. Well, in that case, it wasn't much of a cost to Joshua, who knows how to run long distances. As he talked the whole time he ran, keeping up with me. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Not one time was he ever winded like his dad was. Uh, and so that, that plan kind of backfired. But anyway, um, Jesus says three times there, the word cannot. You cannot be a disciple if you're not willing to, to count the cost and do these things. And I love Jesus for his straightforwardness. And so I want you to see three, three marks of a true disciple this morning. First of all, a true disciple loves Jesus supremely. That's verse 26. Secondly, a true disciple follows Jesus sacrificially, and thirdly, a true disciple follows Jesus consistently, or if it bothers you that there's not an S there, perhaps steadfastly, okay? First of all, a true disciple loves Jesus uh, supremely. Verse 26, if, you, if you're new to the Bible and you read verses like this, I, I, I wonder what your reaction would be. 
I mean, it, it strikes us immediately that Jesus says, if we're not willing to hate our father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even our own life, we cannot be a disciple. Now, um, maybe you're like, well, I never liked my brother in the first place. I really, I really think this is a great church. Um, <laughs> But we've got to make some sense out of what Jesus says here about uh, hating. A few things to keep in mind. First, we should always read a text of Scripture in light of the rest of Scripture. That the Bible is not just holy, but it's harmonious. I could see uh, a skeptic raising this verse and saying, see, the Bible has contradictions. You're taught one place to honor your parents, and here Jesus says, hate them. So we want to interpret it with the rest of Scripture. With that in mind, we know that marriage and family are God's ideas, and certainly Jesus would not deny that and go against uh, that belief. Nor would Jesus want to give us license to break the fifth commandment of honoring our father and mother. Further, it's inconceivable that the same Jesus who taught us to love our neighbor and to love our enemies would now tell us to hate our family. The second thing I would say about this is this is the kind of Semitic exaggeration that Jesus was fond of. He used a lot of shocking hyperbole and a, and a, a lot of speech that was characterized by Hebrew idioms, figures of speech, ways to express things. And it was very common to express a comparison in the form of a categorical contrast. In other words, instead of saying loving someone less than the other, you say you hate the other. And that kind of thing you see in a couple of places in Scripture. For example, in Genesis 29, 30, Jacob, it says, loved Rachel more than Leah. And then in the next verse, it says he hated Leah. And you see that kind of thing in chapter 16, verse 13, where there's another love-hate dichotomy regarding serving God and, and, uh, and, and loving money. Now, I think the most helpful thing, though, is to simply read Matthew's version of this verse because Matthew interprets the text for us, where he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus is not inciting us to hate anyone. This is not uh, hate speech. This is not encouraging even alienation with family or that you should have tense, strained relationships with family. Jesus is simply calling us to put him first. We are to love him first above everyone else. Jesus is to take priority over every relationship we have. That's what he's calling us to. And as a side, we shouldn't be taking hating our own life in a destructive manner, right? Some of you are like, I hate mine. Uh, no, that's, that's not the point. The point is that we are to put Jesus, loyalty to him, love to him above everyone else. As one old writer put it, no man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. Now, some in the world who come to faith in Christ immediately have conflict in their family because family members are so offended by the gospel. Not always, but sometimes. If many in Muslim countries, for example, who become followers of Jesus, uh, basically have their, their family uh, turn their back on them or worse. Now, we don't go seeking conflict in, with our families. But we know that sometimes an unavoidable conflict may happen because of your loyalty to Jesus. And we are to, uh, if we're left with a choice, offend family or offend Jesus, then I don't think you want to offend Jesus. 
And many times you'll find a, a situation where uh, a person is, feels called to go overseas, let's say, on, on, a, on mission, and their family objects to, to that, that calling. And so there, too, we must put Jesus first. Put Jesus above every relationship you have. If you're a teenager, young person, you will probably at some point if, be faced with a temptation because you're drawn to a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and that person can pull you away from loyalty to Jesus Christ. We've seen it countless and countless times. And when you do that, know that you have your loves out of order. And if you get your loves out of order, your life is out of order. <laughs> and so let's, let's put Jesus above all relationships. His word here isn't punishment. It's always for our good. It's for our flourishing. This is the best and wisest thing we can do. Now, what he says there is very important as you think about what he says next, because what he says next is pretty radical, like renounce all your possessions. But I want to say to you that we make sacrifices for people and things we love all the time. Green Bay Packer fans, they do not complain about the cold weather. They're, they love their team. That's no sacrifice. My dad worked in the same factory for over 30 years before retiring in a job he did not like. And why did he do it? Because he loved his family. If you love Jesus supremely, you'll make sacrifices for him gladly. And this is a good starting point for basic discipleship 101, isn't it? We put him above everything. Secondly, and everyone. A true disciple follows Jesus sacrificially. Verse 27 is not the first time we've read in Luke's gospel Jesus say this, that whoever does not bear uh, his own cross and come after him cannot be his disciple. We read this earlier in uh, Luke chapter 9. And when Jesus utters these words in the first century, uh, it would have been heard in a particular way. Because cross-carrying was, well, serious business. If you saw a person carrying a horizontal beam, you knew they were making a one-way trip. They were not coming back. And they would not only be executed, but they would be executed in a most shameful way, a most gruesome way. And again, I love that Jesus doesn't hide the truth from us. He tells us up front that there will be a cost. Now, this needs to be qualified with the rest of the text that Jesus is not saying every follower will literally be a martyr. Some will, but not every follower will be crucified. Previously, Luke added a word that was very helpful, I think, when he says we take up our cross daily. So there's a daily dying that happens if you are a follower of Jesus. What does that mean? It means to put to death the things that are keeping you from following Jesus. Put to death the things that are trying to um, replace superior love for Jesus. Put to death idols. Put to death besetting sin. Following Jesus is about daily dying, putting to death selfish ambition that may come in our hearts. You see, this verse gives profound meaning to our lives. This whole passage does. What are we, what are we about on this life? We're, we're about following Jesus. Someone has said before, a piercing question, what are you doing with the dash between the dates? You go to a tombstone and you see two dates, right? And you see the dash in the middle. None of us know what the ending date will be, but we're on the dash right now. How is it that we make sense of this life? What, we, what do we do with this dash between the dates? It's been said, well, one, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Let our ambition be to magnify Christ. So he says carrying a cross, something about that. Secondly, he says that we need to think it through. Think through the cost. That's the two stories here. First, he tells a story about a guy who's uh, thinking about building a tower. Not sure if you went to Home Depot yesterday and thought about building a tower. Um, very popular for those with vineyards. And he says, if you're, you're going to start a project, um, make sure you have enough resources to finish the project. Otherwise, you'd be left with a lot of unfinished projects like I have in my house. <laughs> and Jesus says here, if you're going to build a tower, you need to think about whether or not you ha <coughs> excuse me, have the funds to, to complete the project. And, and the point that he's making here is simply... Don't rush enthusiastically after Jesus if you don't know what that involves. Think about this, he says. A half-built tower is not a tower. And a half-committed disciple is not a disciple. Or he says it's like a king going off to war. And it's like he's the underdog. He only has, he says, 10,000 troops. He's going up against 20,000 troops. It's a, it's a, it's a battle that doesn't look good. It's, uh, who was it? Marshall going up against Notre Dame. And uh, on that case, they won. Well, he says here, if you don't think that you can win this battle, then it's best to go uh, shake hands and make peace. And so what Jesus is, is urging us to do is to have forethought. And this is important, not just when we first start following Jesus, but also when we start making other decisions related to, to following Jesus with vocation or with marriage, let's say. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer admonishes those uh, thinking about marriage like this. Marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but deliberately. So it's no light thing to follow Jesus. It's no light thing to keep following Jesus when we're uh, uh, you know, inundated with temptations and, and we're, we're faced with trials in this life. And Jesus says, sit down and think it through. Now, the next thing he says is be willing to renounce possessions. Verse 33, if he hasn't said enough already uh, to the crowds, he says, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, we need to, to interpret this but with, with balance. We know that Jesus is not calling every Christian to live in abject poverty. We're not to go move out to the desert and be a hermit. Um, and he's not promoting socialism. Again, we, this is another case in which we interpret uh, what is said in light of the whole of Scripture. And all we have to do is look at Luke and realize that having wealth is not inherently bad. You can use wealth for really, really good reasons. For example, we've already read of the wealthy women in Luke 8 that supported Jesus' ministry. And when John the Baptist was talking to the tax collectors, he didn't tell them to uh, sell all their possessions, but rather to work ethically. Zacchaeus doesn't give up everything, but he does give generously. But of course, there may be a time when Jesus does call us to something radical like that. When he pointed to the rich young ruler, for example, and told him to sell all that he had, and he wasn't willing to. And that is the point. We must be willing to sacrifice anything. Because we realize that everything we have doesn't ultimately belong to us. But we're stewards of it. It's been loaned to us. And we should not be afraid to make sacrifices for following Jesus. And a lot of people don't want to follow Jesus faithfully because they simply have their heart attached to things. 
Remember last week, the, the sermon, you probably don't, but it was, it was I'm, that was wrong to say. You, I'm sure you do. It, Luke, Luke 14, I didn't remember it myself in the first service. I was like, what, 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 what did he say in Luke 14? Uh, when Jesus said there's this great banquet, everybody's invited, and one guy said, no, I gotta go look at some cows. Another guy's like, I, I, I gotta go buy a field. And you see, their heart is attached. They're not willing to do verse 33. That was the fundamental problem. And Jesus says, no, let's hold these things loosely. As Luther says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus didn't come to just give us a little makeover. Jesus came to take over. That's what he's saying in this text. I want all of you. Everything you have. That's what it means for him to be Lord. This isn't like a little Christianity light that Jesus is spitting out here. As Bonhoeffer used to call it, cheap grace. Jesus is saying, be the real deal. And you say, why would I want to do all this? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. No one else atoned for my sins. No one else promises me a new creation. No one else loved me like him. One of my favorite hip-hop groups is Beautiful Eulogy. They had a song I listened to over and over and over this summer on sabbatic. One line, you can take this world as joys and its fleeting pleasures, but give us Jesus, our future hope and greatest treasure. You can take it all, as the old song says, but give me Jesus. You see, when we do this, we find the life that is truly life. And when we do this, this is the wise thing, because we should always stop to ponder the cost of not following Jesus. And that's, where, that's a cost you don't want to pay. So Jesus says here in this text, if you want to be a true disciple, you love me supremely. You sacrifice for me uh, gladly. Thirdly, a true disciple follows Jesus consistently. He tags this little analogy on at the end. There is a, uh, a little word in Greek that's not in the English, so or therefore, and it, it tying together what's said. And this is kind of, again, a concluding uh, punch to what he said, and it's uh, one of his favorite uh, things to, to use to illustrate, namely salt. And he says, salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, not for the soil or the manure pile. A colorful way to say it's worthless. And what Jesus is saying here is uh, uh, salt that has suddenly lost its, its flavor. Salt was both a preservative and a flavor enhancer, and I think he's only using there the latter. And maybe you had some salt this morning. I had salt on my avocado toast, and it was quite good. Um, but he says if, you, if, you, if the salt doesn't, if it's not salty anymore, it is a, it's worthless, and he, Jesus is not interested, obviously, in worthless disciples, those who make no impact in, in the world. So he says, stay salty. Stay salty. Not in the contemporary sense of, of uh, some of you already salty. You're like, I like this church. I hate my brother, and I have salty language. Uh, this is really good. No, no we're, we need to stop the salty language, okay? But what Jesus is talking about here is never losing your distinctiveness. Don't give up the truth of Scripture when it's not popular anymore. Don't give up the truth of Scripture when society praises that which the Bible condemns. 
Be distinct. Maintain the character of a disciple. He who has ears, he says, let him hear. Now, presumably, everybody in this massive crowd that Jesus is addressing had ears, but not everybody had kind of inner ears, right, where they're really hearing what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, if you're hearing what I'm saying, then, then follow me. Now, this is the cost of discipleship that Jesus has been laying out. And what I'd like to do in just the last couple of minutes is try to, to give a, a full picture of, of this call by asking the question, why should you do this? Why count the cost and say yes to following Jesus? And if I had time, I could give a gazillion reasons why you should do that. The peace that surpasses all understanding. The forgiveness of sins. No condemnation. Fellowship with his people the indwelling Holy Spirit, and a whole lot more. But let's just stay in Luke 14, and let me just give you three reasons why you should count the cost and say yes. Number one, for the pure joy of knowing Christ now and for all eternity. You say, what do I get if I, if I decide to follow Jesus? You get Jesus. You get Jesus. That'd be enough sermon over, right? The one who loved you and gave himself up for you. Jesus doesn't promise us that discipleship will be easy. It's not. It's actually hard. But he promises to be with us. He promises to give us himself. Again, beautiful eulogy. Lord, you did everything required to save us and bring us into your presence. So to know you and behold you is our heart's desire. There is nothing greater to acquire. Holy, holy, holy is the song of the choir. I love that line. There is nothing greater to acquire than Jesus Christ. There's nothing more for heaven to give. So why follow him? Because he's better than everything. Secondly, for the purpose you receive in this life. Our lives have significant meaning. And you see that in the analogy of salt. You are the salt of the earth. What, what significance our lives have? We, we put on the character, we put on, display the character of Christ before the world as we try to follow after Jesus and walk in humility and compassion and truthfulness. And we have the word of Christ that we proclaim to the world. And as we do these things, we pray for God to give taste buds to people who don't have taste buds for righteousness. That they may want to taste and see that the Lord is good. So you may leave for your job tomorrow, and it might not be a great job, but you get to be the salt of the earth. You may go to school tomorrow and hate your first class, but you get to be the salt of the earth. You see, we have meaning. We have purpose and significance right now. Paul says it like this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I love that. He says, go season things up. Go be salt in the marketplace. Go be a winsome witness in word and in deed. Engage people with grace Ask questions about their life. Give them the hope of the gospel. We have great purpose. Thirdly, for the blessing you will receive in eternity. You see, this is why we can hold our possessions loosely. This is why we can make sacrifices gladly. The best is still yet to come for the Christian. If you're a Christian, this is as close to hell as you're ever going to have. This is it. We just got to get through this. And it's not very long. We sacrifice now, reward later. 
We sacrifice now, we see Jesus later. As we looked at last week, sacrifice now, but we feast later. We dine with the king later. A tidal wave of blessing awaits Jesus' followers. It's worth it. I was reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul spends 57 verses on the resurrection. How do you end a chapter that had 57 verses on the resurrection? Verse 58, he says, Therefore, in light of the fact that the tomb is empty, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus is risen, your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is coming back, your work, your labor is not in vain. When we see Jesus, we will not regret having followed him. This is what Jesus wanted to say to the crowds. And I'm glad he said it. This is the best way to live. This is the wise thing to do. So let's follow him. Let's follow him into the new creation itself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today, for the clarity of it, the timeliness of it, the power of it. We pray you would give us hearts to receive it today with meekness that we may bear fruit in this world. Thank you for all that we have in Christ Jesus right now in knowing him, our, our greatest treasure. Thank you for the significance our lives have because of Jesus. And thank you for the hope that is in front of us because Jesus is alive and returning. Bless your church, we pray, Lord. Bless us this week and strengthen us to be salt. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.